0: Welcome to King's River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features an excerpt specially adapted for this podcast by Cleo Coyle from her novel, The Ghost and Mrs. McClure, book number one of the Haunted Bookshop Mysteries published in 2004 by Berkeley, an imprint of Penguin Random House.
1: It's being read by local actor, Max DeBoss. After the sudden, terrible death of her young husband, Penelope McClure packed up her little boy and returned to her hometown of Quindicott, Rhode Island. Her aunt Sadie welcomed her with open arms as a partner in running the family's bookshop, and Penelope went right to work refurbishing the old place. She was grateful to be busy, but deep inside, her sense of loss was profound and she began to hear the whisper of a gruff male voice. At first, Penn brushed it off and prayed she wasn't losing her grip on reality. Weaned on her late father's collection of hard-boiled detective novels, she could easily imagine the rough face and imposing figure of the New York private eye who was shot dead on these premises long before she was born. A post-mortem post. If there was a hell, Jack Shepard was in it or else the universe was playing the cosmic joke of the century. Why else would it doom a guy like him to a place like this? In life, Jack's blood had pulsed to the rhythm of the city's streets. The smoky dice joints and swingin' suds clubs, the back alleys and flop houses. He even got to know the uptown joints doing swing shifts as a bodyguard for cliff dwellers, those high-rise society types, Believe it or don't, every third dame would get all hopped up and invite him back to her posh Park Avenue nest. What do you say, big guy? Be my 60-minute man? Why couldn't eternity be a joint like that? Instead, he got lead poisoning in the godforsaken sticks, eternity in Cornpone Alley. Now the only excitement Jack ever got was scaring the crap out of small-town operators witless enough to invade his cave. At times, whole years would go by with blessed peace and quiet. When human activity was sparse, he could get some true rest, settling into a sweet forgetful limbo akin to passing out after a bender. He'd been in exactly that state when the damn construction started, hammering, sanding, painting, sawing, a nerve-wracking racket in the lousy bookshop where somebody had punched his last ticket. Sure, Jack had played pranks on the construction crew, making them think work tools had disappeared, sending energy surges through the electrical wiring, but they'd finished anyway. Then that buggy dame had started in with the folding chairs. He'd watched her arrange them one by one. Unfold the chair. Place the chair. Adjust the chair. Make a row. Adjust the row. Make another row. If he'd been alive, Jack would have beat his own head against the stone wall until he blacked himself out. Instead, he'd made every chair appear turned on its head. He had to give the broad credit, though. She hadn't screamed, no, hadn't even made a peep. Just high-tailed it out of there, returning within minutes to see everything set right again. Her name was Penelope McClure, and he had to admit, she showed more moxie than a lot of the grown men he'd pranked over the years. Not a bad looker, either. Had a nice face and soft voice. Certainly, she was the first living entity he'd considered shifting himself towards since he'd crossed over. Which was hilarious, because if he had read her thoughts right, she didn't even believe in ghosts. Well, he hadn't believed in them, either. Concrete Jack, that's what he'd been. You want me to believe in something, I gotta see proof. Show it to me plain as the broken nose on my face. In life, Jack had seen enough corpses to know death was the end. When you died, you died, and that was it. Brother had he been wrong. Now he sat back and watched, and lately it was that broad Penelope he couldn't stop watching. Despite her sweet-as-pie face and hard work ethic, the doll could be pretty annoying. The chair-fixing compulsion was just one case in point. Still, the dame didn't deserve the flack she was getting from the biggest a-hole of the 20th century, Timothy Brennan, yellow journalist, degenerate gambler, itinerant backstabber. The two-bit newsman had fouled up more than one of Jack's cases. Now he was billing himself as some kind of best-selling author, and throwing his considerable weight around, ordering Penelope to rearrange the room, fetch and carry, make things just so for his little book signing. Timothy Brennan, that lousy rat, think? Before Brennan appeared, Jack had been observing the bookshop activities this evening with mild interest. Now Jack was awake, and alert, and boiling mad. Brennan didn't know it yet, but he had just made the biggest mistake of his life. He'd walked into Jack's bookstore. Ten hours later. Penelope's pounding head lolled from side to side as she wrestled with Dreamland. When consciousness finally won, she rose from the rocking chair where she'd passed out and began moving shakily through the dimly lit bookstore. Anyone here? Her mouth was cotton, no doubt from the whiskey her aunt had given her to calm her nerves after the police arrived. I really could use a drink of something non-alcoholic, she thought. She checked her watch, big hand on twelve, little on four. Well, the party's certainly over, she mumbled, looking at her beautifully renovated shop. All the new inventory, the antiques, the fixtures, all her hopes and efforts. More than the party was over, and she knew it. Timothy Brennan had been by-the-book's first author appearance, and he'd ended up dead. Talk about cursed. Now authors would avoid this store in droves, right along with the customers. Not that they hadn't before, this incident just gave them a new reason. Penelope sighed, who in the world will patronize us now? Maybe Brennan's ghost, she thought, if she believed in ghosts. Her friend Brainerd once said that ghosts and stories meant unfinished business, but he'd been talking about literary devices. As her shaky legs moved beneath the archway that led to the community events space, Penn tried to recall the last time she'd considered actual spirits. It had been years, back when she'd watched them lower her mother into the muddy earth of the Quindicott Village Cemetery. At the ripe old age of 13, she'd been certain that death was not the end. Every night she'd whisper into the dark from beneath her blanket. She'd tell her mother about her day at school, a boy she liked, a grade she got, Pen was certain her mom could hear her, just couldn't answer. After school each day, she'd visit her mother's grave, bring her a flower, read her a poem. Sometimes she'd visit the other graves. A neighbor boy who'd been hit by a car, a favorite teacher who'd suffered a massive heart attack, a teenage girl who drowned. Pen had become an expert at talking to the dead, and a few times when she'd been under great stress, she thought she could hear the dead speaking to her. But then she lost her older brother and her dad. At seventeen, Penelope stopped trying to talk to the dead. It seemed pointless. She was alive, and they were not. Wherever they'd gone, they'd left her behind, and it suddenly seemed clear. The only thing the dead left the living was alone. One of the store's dim nightlights shone in the corner. The chairs had been folded and stacked against the far wall, leaving a wide expanse of empty floor, No police tape or chalk lines or anything out of the ordinary. Why should there be? Brennan died of natural causes. A heart attack, perhaps, or a stroke. Penn gazed at the carved oak podium, now standing in the corner, the spot where Brennan had fallen. A doctor in the audience had performed CPR on the author for ten minutes before the paramedics arrived to pronounce him done for. There would be no ghost. When you're dead, you're dead. That's all there is to it, she mumbled. Oh, yeah. Who says? Pen froze. She took a step back and searched, but saw no one. Still, the room was too dark to see through every shadow. Whoever you are, the party's over, okay? She said, trying and failing to sound commanding. You have to leave now. Believe me, honey, I would if I could. Penn told herself to keep steady. Her aunt Sadie and young son Spencer were upstairs. She had to get this guy out of the store. Now. What, "'What do you want? Money? I doubt we sold many books.' "'Think again, doll. You sold them all.' "'What?' "'They're all gone. Now look for yourself.' Penn wanted to run right to the stockroom, but first she returned to the main part of the shop, reached under the counter, and let her fingers close on Sadie's aluminum baseball bat. Sadie would have locked up the money in a safe upstairs, but the stockroom would have the evidence. And "'Stay out of my way if you don't want a bashed-in skull,' Penn said.' Too late, the man replied. Pen flipped the switch. The entire space brightened and revealed no one. She hurried across the large room and into the back corridor, swiping at switches along the way. Then she entered the chilly stockroom and almost dropped the bat. In the corner were over a dozen crushed cardboard boxes. Not one was left unravaged. Three hundred hardcovers, Pen murmured, doing the math in her head. It's 27 a copy times 346% of which we keep. That's almost $4,000 in one night. An average annual income in my time. Good haul, honey. Penn wheeled, searching for the man who kept speaking. Where in the hell are you? Right here. With you. Penn couldn't take it anymore. She ran from the storage area. I'm calling the police. To tell them what? Huh? You're hearing voices? Penn's step slowed. He wasn't wrong. She couldn't see him. What was she going to tell the cops? An invisible man was talking to her. The Quindicott PD would have trouble finding a criminal who walked up to their front door. What's your name? Penn demanded, hoping she could talk him out of hiding. Her name's Jack. Jack what? Jack Shepard. That's not funny. I'm not trying to be funny. No, you're trying to scare me, and I don't appreciate it. Ain't that a tragedy? At least you sold your books. Yes, that's good news. Uh, but I'm sure it's just a one-night fluke. Maybe. But I'll tell you what's not a fluke. Brennan's death. What do you mean? He was murdered, honey. Set up and sent up. Well, that's an awful thing to say. Ah, uh, take a break from Miss Prisland, would you? What? You nice-thinking Jane's really burned me up. Well, the same to you, whoever you are. I told you, Jack Shepard. Shut up! If you're such a big, tough, hard-boiled dick, then why are you hiding, huh? Where the heck are you? Too afraid to show yourself? After a terrible silence, the voice spoke again. Turn off the light. Oh, shit, she thought. Deep male laughter filled her head. (laughs) Thought you didn't use such language. How could you hear that? I didn't say it. Baby, I don't know how I can hear your thoughts. I just can so, you want to see me? Turn off the lights. This was just someone from the book signing party, Penn told herself, someone playing a game. She moved toward the exit, where she could dash away quickly if she didn't like what she saw. Then she positioned the bat in a defensive position and flipped the main switch. The dim nightlight in the corner was the only illumination. That and the silver streaks from the street lights beyond the big front window. Bat at the ready, Penelope scanned the room, and then she saw it. A shadow on the wall, a fedora on a square-jawed profile, broad-suited shoulders tapering down to a narrow waist. Whoever he was, he had obviously read the newspaper ads and come in the costume of Timothy Brennan's internationally famous character, Detective Jack Shield, a larger-than-life figure based on the case files of the real P.I., Jack Shepard. Suddenly, the shadow on the wall moved, and Penn gripped the bat tighter. She saw the figure's arm come up, one finger pushed at the brim of his fedora, tilting it back on his head. Then he folded his arms over his broad chest. It was a confident gesture, masculine and sure. I'm Jack Shepard, Mrs. McClure. Or to be absolutely precise, and you like precision, don't you? I'm his ghost. Penn saw the shadow move off the wall watched as it became three dimensions, and stepped like a dark figure through an invisible archway and into the room. Outside, headlights from a passing car shot shafts of silver through the window, and in the briefest moment of illumination, she glimpsed his visage plain as day. The sunken cheeks, the craggy skin, the crooked nose, the iron jaw, and the one-inch scar in the shape of a dagger slashing across the flat, square chin. Whoever he was, he held the same relentlessly masculine features of the man whose grimacing photo graced every one of Timothy Brennan's books. You can't be Jack Shepard. You can't be. He's dead. Now you're getting it. Penelope's bat dropped to the floor. Two seconds later, so did she.
0: This reading of The Ghost and Mrs. McClure was produced by King's River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. This adaptation of the excerpt of The Ghost and Mrs. McClure was created by Cleo Coyle for this podcast for promotional purposes, all rights reserved. The latest book in this series, The Ghost and the Bogus Bestseller*, was released in September of 2018. To learn more about Cleo Coyle, visit cleocoil.com. And to learn more about the Haunted Bookshop Mysteries, visit hauntedbookshopmystery.com. Check out Kings River Life Magazine's websites for more mystery, local theater, animal rescue, and so much more. kingsriverlife.com and krlnews.com. We will be back next time with another mystery short story or mystery first chapter. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. And follow us on Twitter to keep up with everything KRL at Kings River Life. Until next time, we wish you a life full of mystery.